One of the most ironic things about what's going on is that in the 70s and 80s, being a racist became practically equivalent to being a pedophile in you know, what you might call enlightened America and also beyond it. So now we have a situation where this, this small group of people, this vocal minority, can scare the rest of us into pretending an allegiance to things that we know we do not truly have the kind of allegiance to that this crowd do, that often we're, we're pretending allegiance to ideas that we know don't make any sense. We are excluding from the common context things that we know that we value simply because it has become such a feared thing to be called a racist. It's good to not want to be a racist, but these people piggyback on it. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest, John McWhorter, teaches linguistics and music history at Columbia University. He's the author of more than 20 books, a contributor to The Atlantic, and the host of the Slate podcast, Lexicon Valley. If you're a fan of this show, chances are you know John from his writings and his talking around issues of race. Since 2007, he has been in regular conversation with Brown University economist Glenn Lowry on the bloggingheads.tv platform, where he's become highly respected as a uniquely honest voice on the complexities and often the hypocrisies of certain progressive anti-racist orthodoxies. Last summer, John began writing a new book about all of this. It's called The Elect, The Threat to a Progressive America from Anti-Black, Anti-Racists, and it's being made available in serialized form on his Substack and will be published later this year. Meanwhile, John's new book about language, Nine Nasty Words, is out this week. I spoke with John about his work over the last several years, his frustrations with our so-called racial reckoning, and believe it or not, how he'd vowed not to write about race anymore until his appreciation for cookbook author Alison Roman made him change his mind. You'll see. I want to start actually by thanking you. Uh, as you know, and as I've written, the conversations you were having uh, with Glenn Lowry, uh, starting in about 2014, 2015, a profound effect on me. Uh, and that's because you were talking about being a black person the way I wanted to talk about being a woman. Mm -hmm. You were talking about racism the way I wanted to talk about sexism. And until I heard you do it, I didn't quite think it was allowed. So right. uh, I just want to say I appreciate that. And uh, I wonder, like, when you were able to start talking that way, or if you had always been talking that way. I, I know you've been doing those conversations with Glenn starting way before that, but mm -hmm. how did this kind of arise in your thinking? Well, for me, it really all starts a very long time ago now with the Rodney King riots. And back then, I'm just a 20-something grad student. And my feeling had always tacitly been that something really seismic had happened with Black America in the mid-60s because of the civil rights victories and that I was born in 1965 and that I was massively fortunate to have grown up after the hideousness of the time before that. And I knew there was a such thing as racism. I knew that I had experienced it here and there. I knew things weren't perfect. But by 1991, I thought really, really great things had happened, that I was 
I had been lucky enough to live through a time of major progress. And the Rodney King verdict gave me my first sustained exposure to how many black people, educated and not, regardless of temperament, genuinely seemed to feel that not much progress had been made beyond people having better manners. And I think the difference between me and many people, and I don't mean black people, I just mean people, is that I was disinclined to think that all of these people around me who are thinking of themselves as stand-ins for Rodney King and think that what happened to him was a symbol that, quote-unquote, a black person can't get justice in this country still, which just struck me as so counterintuitive and so against reality. I thought it's not that they're crazy. It's not that there's something wrong with their mental thinking. It's not that they're trying to profit from playing victims because most of them, you know, weren't profiting from anything. But I thought if they're not crazy and they're not cynical, what is this? Because I'm not crazy either. And maybe Mm -hmm. that's just a certain arrogance in me. But I thought I know that what I'm seeing is real. And yet they are saying all of this feeling just as correct as me. What's, What's the issue? And what made me comfortable starting to say so was Shelby Steele's book, The Content of Our Character. And I very quickly found that the typical educated black person of that time thought that book was just heretical, you know, couldn't even begin. Most people you could tell couldn't even read it, couldn't even get through it. Yeah. But he made me think, here's a sane person. He is not crazy. He's not trying to profit. And he clearly is just making a certain sense. And I thought, if he can do it, then I feel less eccentric. And I've been following in his footsteps ever since, such that when they asked me to speak with Glenn on Blogging Heads, and, and m- many people won't believe it was 07, we've been doing it for that long. Wow. It came very naturally to me to say these things, knowing that the public would hear them. Because by then I'd had some practice, but if it weren't for Shelby Steele's book, I don't know if I would have had that confidence. And so I'm glad that I played at least an analogous kind of role with you to just show (laughs) that you are not a bad person to not agree with the usual kind of dialogue we hear. Well, and not a crazy person. It was Mm -hmm. more, it was more that, that I wasn't totally off and I wasn't, I wasn't missing something huge. I mean, I'm sure we, there are always things that we're missing, but that I wasn't completely living in a different universe. But Shelby Steele has always been known as a conservative. Did you at that time think of yourself as a liberal? I mean, I'm assuming you were like in graduate school around that time. So how did you kind of, how did that figure in? Well, you know, the truth is that, um, You know, despite the fact that some people understandably think of me as somebody who had his eye on the main chance and carved a niche as a controversial race commentator, back in (laughs) 1991, I was a nerdy linguistics graduate student. I was more concerned with doing theater and, and chasing women without much success. That's what my life was. It had nothing to do with trying to become a political person. So I didn't read Shelby Steele as a conservative. I didn't know that he was a card carrying conservative. To tell you the truth, I was at Stanford. I didn't know what the Hoover Institution did or was. I knew it had something to do with George Schultz, so I guess I knew it it leaned mm-hmm. right. But I didn't, and Shelby wasn't part of it then. I didn't know. I knew, just as I know now, that I am a good liberal. I have never voted Republican, never even really considered it. But it just seemed to me that this Shelby Steele person was making sense. If anything, I made the assumption most people did and do. He's black. He's an academic. He must be a Democrat. It didn't strike me as conservative. It struck me as just sense. And I later realized that his sorts of views were classified as right wing. That, However, that came much later for me. And were you actually starting to write in this vein at that time? When did the shift from 
linguistics uh, kind of artsy person uh, happen and you became more political. <laughs> Much later, actually. I didn't know I was going to be writing about these things. And of course, in 1991, there's essentially no internet. And so, you know, how God, do you yes. write? Except remember those days. And so if you're going to write anything, it was going to be a book. And even then I knew that, you know, only so many people are up for reading nonfiction books at all. So I wasn't thinking I was going to be writing about that. I always knew I wanted to be a nonfiction book writer, but I thought it was going to be about languages or dinosaurs or musical theater or something. I had no idea it would be about race. But things happened in the 90s that just got me madder and more and more frustrated. First, Rodney King, and then the response to the O.J. Simpson verdict. And then finally, what put me over the edge was, and it's interesting, if I hadn't gotten this job, I wouldn't be talking to you. I happened to get a job at Berkeley in the late 90s when there was the big uproar over the discontinuation of racial preferences. And you, you know, opinions will differ as to what you were going to do in place of racial preferences and whether or not they should have been discontinued. But the way people talked about it, was liturgical, counterintuitive, and often just outright mendacious. And once again, it was people who weren't crazy and they weren't bad people. And yet there was this discussion as if affirmative action had only been about bringing kids from poverty into the school, as if there was no performance difference between these kids and others and not a severe one once you brought kids into school. And it was as if to discontinue racial preferences had to be a matter of bigotry or just an outright callousness to the legacies of history. And none of it squared with the reality I was experiencing, which was that most of the black kids at Berkeley were thoroughly middle class, not rich, but middle class, and that there was a different approach among a great many of them to the thing we know as, as school, and that the reason for that was not that they were dumb. It wasn't that there was something wrong with them, but there was a cultural factor involved that was a predictable outcome of racism in the past. But I could see as somebody who happened to be teaching both the white and the black kids, there was a huge difference and it wasn't about poverty. And I just kind of boiled over. It wasn't any one thing, but I just could not stand listening to this dialogue. I couldn't stand the way everybody black and white assumed that I was thinking the same way. And I wrote a book, and that book was called Losing the Race, Self-Sabotage in Black America. Much to my surprise, it got around a good deal, and one thing led to another. But it was it was the 90s that got me. I just couldn't stand the cognitive dissonance anymore. And once again, I wanted people to know. I remember at the time thinking, Losing the Race is going to be read by a few people in Berkeley and Oakland. It's going to make certain black people very upset, but they'll get over it. And in the meantime, nobody again will ever assume that I believe all of these mantras and all of this double talk standing in my office door, assuming that I'm thinking the way all these other people are frankly pretending to think. That's all I thought Losing the Race would be. It ended up being more, and I'm glad, but um, it was just a matter of that I like things to make sense. And and that includes race, whereas for many people who are black, the idea is things make sense. But once you talk about race issues, things are supposed to stop making complete sense as if we're talking about religion. I have just never been able to go for that. And had you written any articles? Had you said anything publicly? Were you a sort of known figure? Were, did people have your number before losing the race? Or was that just sort of like a shot over the bow? Um, 
I left one thing out because I think stories should be streamlined, which is that in between OJ and losing the race, there had been the controversy over whether or not black English should be used in schools, which had started in Oakland. And I had come out so naive. I mean, like, draw me as a cartoon character. And I had these big blinking brown eyes and this big giant head. I was just out of the nest. I had no idea what I was going to run up against. But I said, black English is not going to help the kids. There's nothing wrong with black English, but that's not why the kids are having trouble in school. They're having trouble in school because of their home lives and because the schools don't do any teaching. That was quite simply the truth. And I said that truth having no idea that I was going against the shibboleth, that what I was supposed to say was, yes, these kids are being denied their rights as basically bilinguals. That's based on racism. We must bring black English into the schools and the money that that will entail because otherwise these kids are being denied by systemic racism. You're just supposed to say that. And it's funny, black professors, including linguists, no matter what their politics, you know, there, there were a few who take me into a corner and say they were Republicans. But still, you're supposed <laughs> to hold your fist up in the air like Malcolm X. So I had been dumped on about that for about 10 minutes. And so there were some people who knew of me as an apostate because of that. And that was one more thing that left me thinking, what is this? Because it was after that episode that I realized, wow, there's a certain kind of person who really thinks that it is my job to suspend thought in the name of something that I don't think helps anybody. So I wasn't sitting and fuming. I mean, all of this was over by the spring of 1997, and I would have forgotten it. But by the spring of 1998, it was this dialogue about affirmative action at Berkeley that had kind of kept my embers hot. And then everything changed. And so, yeah, I, but no, before losing the race, I was not one of the little posse of what, what are often called black conservatives who were writing op-eds in the Wall Street Journal. I had written one little piece. All of it is so contingent. My former agent happened to do a blog page, a very intelligent blog page. They mostly do scientists. They brought me in through the back door because why – be, because the first book I did for them was on linguistics, technically, and linguistics is a science. And so I had access to their blog page, and I wrote a piece frustrated with the way affirmative action has been discussed at had been discussed at Berkeley. And that got a certain amount of attention, most of it zestily negative. And so my agent was smart enough to say, you want to make this into a book? And at first I said no, because I wondered who would read it, because who, who knew who I was? But that was really the only thing. I wasn't known before. I just decided to take a chance. And I'm lucky I write fast. You know, it's frankly a little bit ridiculous how quickly I write. So it didn't take any great effort to write Losing the Race. I just, I just spilled it. And now, you know, who knew that it was going to result in this? But, you know, you take your life one day at a time. So when you say that it was the response was, what did you say, zestily negative? Did mm -hmm. that, does that excite you or does it worry you? Because I, I want to get into this, like before I, we take listeners, you know, through the kinds of things that you say, I'm sure most, many of the listeners are familiar with you, but I want to talk more in depth about what you're actually saying. I'm curious, what is it about you as a person that makes you inclined to talk about this stuff? Like, why do you bother? This is a question I ask myself all the time. Like, why can't people like us just get over it and think about yeah. other things. Is it something about your temperament? Is it something just about your personality, the way you were raised? Like, what what is the psychology driving some of this? Mm -hmm. I like to have my point. I probably should have been a lawyer. 
And so as my dissertation- <laughs> I think that more and more all the time these days. You know, you know that's yes. what, what we do is basically lawyering. And my dissertation money. advisor, yes. yes, he said once, you know, don't get John mad because he'll write a book. And that actually, that is exactly what it is. If I am challenged on something where I feel that I can make sense of it, I feel like really having my point. And you know, one way to do it is write a book. These days, that's ever less fashionable. And so, what you do is, you know, you get a Substack or you you do podcasts. But that is what that is my my nature. And then also another part of it is, um, I'm a I'm a nerd. I'm somebody who the, the essence of me is a Montessori kid who likes just reaching out magpie style. I like a little of this and a little of that. And sometimes it has to do with race issues and, and you know, I want them to, but just as often, if not more, it doesn't, you know, I'm a dinosaur fanatic, for example. I mean, not just Triceratops and whatever. I mean, I could go to a paleontology conference and for 10 minutes have those guys, and mostly guys, convinced that I was one of them. I'm just, I can't stop. Wow. Or, you know, Looney Tunes. I can name you every presidential wife. You know, I'm that type. And in huh. an answer to am I, I don't even need to specify what people are thinking. Probably a little bit. And so I am that. Wait, wait, kind. a little bit what? Wait, I'm you probably a little bit on the spectrum. On you know, the spectrum? Okay. Just a little. You know, you I just, can you tell. You just intuited that that's what uh, I was oh, about to ask you. thinking it, all these lists and oh. things oh, like that. And so, stuff. yeah, I read about those sorts of people and I don't have any dysfunction, but I can tell that, you know, all sorts of things about that crowd. I get it. And I have a little bit of it. And so I'm that kind of person. And if you are that kind of person and you're black, you very well might have experiences where you're told that you're not authentic in those ways. And so, for example, during the whole Ebonics thing, a lot of it was me just being a language nerd and saying, this could not possibly be what is keeping people from learning how to read because this, that, and the other thing. And you weren't allowed to reason. Beyond a certain point, reason was unwelcome. As one person very perfectly put it, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. And as gorgeous as that sounds, um, because of you know the, the balance, et cetera, it's frustrating because technically a lot of us know that you might be right even if you don't care. And I did care. Yeah, I don't, I'm thinking about that. I, I, I don't, know? that doesn't make any sense at all. It no, it doesn't nice make any right, sense, but, but you can imagine how in a certain room everybody would clap. Yeah. Some of the whole race orthodoxy that I've been battling, part of the reason I have a visceral feeling towards it is because a lot of it is basically telling me that there's something wrong with me, and I don't like it. That's not the main reason, but a black nerd can have a hard time. And by that, I don't mean that I was actively teased by other black kids for thinking I was white for liking school. I've written a lot about that. I'm writing about it because I watched it happening to other people. I was actually pretty good at fending it off, but I watched other kids where, you know, that's it, they weren't as good at it and it can really lead you into some bad choices. So part of it is just that this whole dialogue is very limiting to a black person. It limits what a black identity is considered to be. And for me, the idea that as a black person you're told even tacitly that your range of interest should not stray too far beyond black pain, and then you're going to die having not experienced the world as what it is? No, I just can't have it. And that's partly just me as a Montessori kid in the early 70s, you know, learning about, you know, the states and their capitals and not thinking that, well, this is something that white kids do. I just, I, mm -hmm. I couldn't have it and I don't want it now. Well, also, 
being told that this is how you should feel about any given interaction. You know, there was a moment that I've always remembered. This was in a conversation you had with Glenn. You described an interaction with a racist person and said, this person is nothing to me. He's like gum on my shoe. I remember that was your exact <laughs> phrasing. I and would have said that, yeah. That, yes, yeah, sounds like you. That is always how I have felt about sexist men. They're just not my problem. To have somebody try to diminish me as a woman, uh, is that that person is beneath my regard. To make them into a problem would be to give them power that they don't necessarily have. Now, is that because... I'm in a privileged position and I I have, you know, the ability to kind of shoo that person off. Like, how do you how do you answer the person who says, well, that's nice for you, mm-hmm. uh, but that's not most people's lived experience? See, there's a there's a where do you draw the line on this that makes these things hard? Because obviously there's a point at which somebody's somebody's racism aimed at me would be genuinely debilitating. Or some people have asked me, how would you feel if somebody were calling you the N-word over and over again, and it wasn't somebody of a different social class than you, but, you know, one of your peers, and it just kept happening and happening? And yeah, I mean, I'm human. Of course, the thing is, that wouldn't happen in 2021. And more to the point, the thing is that many of the people who are saying to you, well, that's just you, but that's not how I feel. The problem is that, especially since the 1960s, Certain people have been encouraged to take on the noble victim complex as a basis of identity. And we don't like to talk about that partly because where do you draw the line and partly because there's a sense that there's a slippery slope, that if you allow these things that don't bother you or don't bother me, then maybe things are going to get worse, to which my answer is partly when has that happened? When has there been this kind of backlash in modern American social history? What's your model as opposed to what you're afraid might happen? Justify why you're afraid of that happening. And then more to the point, I think that it is this victimhood identity that I think we need to bring into the discussion in a more scientific way. And I really do mean that. I'm going to start doing it. I've mentioned it on a few of the Blogging Heads episodes, and because I'm so busy lately, I never get around to putting my money where my mouth is. But psychologists know about the victim-focused identity. And of course, they tiptoe around saying too much about the black part, usually, although not always. But there is that, and I have to say very carefully, because I avoid talking about women in, in this regard, because I feel I'm not a woman. I really have no standing. But yes, I can't help perceiving that sexism is the same thing in that one can decide in certain cases, and it's not just a few, whether or not you're going to let it ruin your day. And of course, we're not talking about Harvey Weinstein. We're not talking about George, We're not talking about Governor Cuomo. We're talking about the passing things that you're talking about. Why do you let it ruin your day if it's something so small, especially given that a perfectly ordinary person, say, 30 or 40 years ago, wouldn't have and genuinely you know, walked off okay and enjoyed their lives? These are hard things, though, because there's no firm line. And also, we don't have a firm framework for talking about the victim-focused identity and how counterproductive it is and just how new it is to enshrine it as advanced 
it would be so interesting to, you know, just walk around in 1960 and see how alien that would be to a great many very intelligent and very psychologically healthy people. But we're at the point where, you know, anybody who was alive and were running around then is now very elderly. And so when they talk about how they felt, we figure, well, that was another time and everything was benighted back then. But in some ways, just some, it wasn't. But that's a hard thing to talk about. I also feel like a lot of these interactions in the past, people would have just, you know, gone and complained about it with their friends. And then, you know, the, the moment would have passed. They would have gotten mm-hmm. it out of their system. Now they go on Tumblr or on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever it is and complain about it in a post. And the reverberations and you go girls go on for days and weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, there is the the sort of illusion of uh, th- that, that this is so more pervasive than ever. We've never, society has never been more racist. Society has never been more sexist. We hear this all the time and it's just Mm -hmm. illogical. (laughs) And time passes and it gets to the point where people who are saying that, it's not that they're whippersnappers, but you can be 35 and really think that, but part of it is that you weren't 35 30 years ago. (laughs) So you don't, you never saw the progress that's been happening. And so it's just, here's one. And I am, completely open to being knocked down on this one, but this just occurs to me. 30 years ago, what year is it? It's 1991. And this is me as this callow graduate student. It was around the same time. And there was a college bowl thing that was going on on campus, except for some reason, many graduate students were doing it too. I forget how this went, but that seemed like something that was up my alley. And so I went in and at one point, I think it was gender segregated, Maybe, or maybe just mostly guys did it. It was a whole room full of guys. I was the only black one there, and the idea was to pair off for teams. And all this happened so quickly. Three teams paired off and went to other sides of the room. Nobody said a thing to me. It was like in a cartoon. All of a sudden, there were these three clumps of white guys in the corner. Nobody had touched my elbow. Nobody had made contact with me, and they did not know each other from before. It was clear that these people just immediately assumed that the black guy couldn't be smart. And none of them were thinking about it consciously, but it wasn't that I was socially awkward, because despite what I just said about myself before, actually, I walk into a room and I'm no, just no. like anybody you're else. Theater, you're a theater person. Theater so, person, you yes. know. No, it was clear. It was pure, clear racism that this happened so quickly. And, you know, I just nosed my way into a group and I I did fine. But that happened. I suspect that would be less likely now. I could be wrong because I'm not that age anymore and I don't do college bowl. But I think that we've seen a lot more black nerdery, especially over about the past 10 or 15 years. The assumption that a person with brown skin isn't going to know what the capital of Minnesota is, is less than it is now. But If you didn't experience what it was like to be a black person, even in the very advanced 1991 in the Bay Area of California, where something like that would happen to you about once every four months, then it's easy to think that George Floyd shows that now nothing has changed since then, when the reality is much more complicated than that. Yeah. So with respect to that, last summer, you began writing a book about the new anti-racism movement, and you're now serializing it on Substack. It's called The Elect Neo-Racists Posing as Anti-Racists and Their Threat to Progressive America. Who is the elect? (laughs) Well, I want to say the elect is not just woke. 
the whole way no. we're using woke now is evolving as it has to. But it's not just woke people because I frankly think I'm woke. It's the hyper woke. It's woke people who are mean about it. That's the elect. It's these people who think that they've got this message of truth and justice and that that message of truth and justice justifies defenestrating people, seeking people's dismissal from their jobs, verbal abuse, abuse on social media, basically this excommunication from the general polite public context. The people who think that that's okay, the people who either engage in it or like it with a capital L on social media, or watch it and just figure it's just desserts and say that revolutions are messy. That is electness. And it, and it comes in degrees, but it's wokeness as abuse. That's what the elect is. Mm, and it started mm-hmm. to alarm me last summer, and that's why I wrote the book. So weaponized wokeness. Who could? Perhaps. I'm keeping that. Yes. Wep- I'm going to credit you. Weaponized okay, wokeness. That's, okay. that's what the elect is. But how, so how did you come up with the, the term the elect? Was it hard? Because I know I try not to use wokeness anymore the same way I, I try not to use the term cancel culture. They've just been diluted Hopeless. down into nothingness. Yeah. So like, did, did you, did it just occur to you or did you have like a list of words you were, you know, did you, were you trying to find the perfect word to describe this phenomenon? Well, you know, I, who, you know, have to reach to find the word excommunicate, I am not great at titles of things, snappy titles. I usually have to drink to come up with them. You know, for my books, they always come at the very <laughs> last a, minute. Wine literary tradition. <laughs> it really does work. For some reason, red wine is good for the titles. But no, I, I can't do it. And coming up with a term for these elect people, I had a hard time. I just ripped it off of Joseph Bottom. He, he came up with the elect, and I took it from him because I think it really does sum it up. Some people still don't like it, but it just sums up what these people are like because they do think of themselves as anointed to an extent. They think that they have found a higher wisdom, and they want to use it to improve the world. They're not evil for that, but they think that they've got kind of a third eye. And then, you know, because they are elect, they can be rather abusive, and they think of the abuse as part of what you have to do to make the world a better place. But yeah, it's that crowd. And it's not that they didn't exist before. But boy, did they acquire a certain influence in roughly June of 2020. Yeah, I seem to recall you saying that you were not going to write about race, maybe <laughs> a few years earlier, that you wanted to write about culture and the arts and yeah, what happened old to movies and such. So what, uh, <laughs> what, what was the last straw? Just you know, last Megan, summer? Isn't it funny how it's just, it's contingent. It was the silliest thing. But it wasn't silly because I'm glad I did this. It's become this whole new wing of my life and it's wearing me to a nub, but this has got to stop. But what changed my mind? If you had talked to me literally a year ago, I would have still said no more books about race. No, but you know, not enough people want to read nonfiction books now because of social media. I don't want to be balkanized as being only about that. Blogging heads will have to do in my columns. I really wouldn't have done it. And I had written a book about profanity. I have to say here, as somebody who wrote a book and needs to sell it, Nine Nasty Words is a jolly book. It is a beautiful physical size. It's full of jokes. It has nothing to do with race except for the chapter on the N-word. And even there, I'm not very tendentious in it. It is a jolly book. It represents the real me. It's coming out in May. I had written that and figured that would be it for a while. And you know what it tipped it off? <laughs> it was poor Allison, Allison Roman. 
in the Times. I love her recipes. And I was really getting into them, partly because I became single uh, six months before the pandemic hit. And so I was, you know, learning how to cook more. I had cooked, but, you know, now it's only me and I've got two little girls and there were certain things I had never really bothered to learn how to do. And I found I really clicked with her recipes. And then she gets discontinued because she says something a little snarky about Marie Kondo and Chrissy Teigen, and that's supposed to be against people of color. And Marie Kondo is Japanese, and Chrissy I didn't know Teigen Chrissy is Teigen was of color. Actually, you know, that I was, didn't know until then. But yes, yeah, I didn't know just, who she was really at all. But yeah, <laughs> I knew who she was, but apparently she's half Thai, and and so that makes her a person of color. And so Allison Roman gets suspended, and now she's gone. I'm not sure how that played out, but she is basically taking care of herself. And not that I thought of that as this seismic event in American culture, but with that one, I thought that poor columnist is no longer in her job and may never come back because of something that, and she didn't do anything wrong. She did nothing wrong. And yet a certain squadron of people got her basically fired for no transgression that anybody would have recognized as such until about 10 minutes ago. And I think that happened in in June. And I thought, you know what? That's a pattern. It's going to keep going. And it most certainly has. I thought, that's it. If Alison Roman can't give me her recipes anymore because she insulted Chrissy Teigen, and that means that she's a racist, something is deeply wrong. And it was kind of like with losing the race where I just had to write it. I remember with losing the race thinking, even if nobody reads this, I've got to get this out on paper before I can go on being in place. With this one, I told my agent, you know, Dan, I'm sorry, I, I'm going to write this. It's spilling out of me as if it's being dictated from on high. We're going to have to do something with it. I can't not write it. I know that it's probably not the moment, et cetera, et cetera, but I can't not do this. And so I just spat it out. It was like it was like giving birth. It, I, it would just come. <laughs> I would sit down okay. at a desk and it would just Perhaps go. Not, yes. And finally it was done. <laughs> It, it it was like, I shouldn't say this, but I wrote that book in like 20 minutes. And uh, now I feel cleansed and we'll just see what happens. <laughs> wow. You, Allison Roman needs to buy you a drink or the other way around or something like that. <laughs> she, she could. You need to have her over for dinner to uh If she would make me her, her lamb ragu. Yes. Yeah, she's, she's good. When you say the elect, are you talking about the true believers or are you also including the go along with her with the go along with her? <laughs> it's a continuum. And so of course there's the extreme, then there're the people who don't mind watching that sort of thing. And the book is really written to them. I'm writing to fence sitters, the people who look at this crusade, they know something's wrong, but there's a part of them that thinks that this might be a new morality that they need to jump onto, that maybe they as fence sitters are equivalent to the sorts of people who were drinking their highballs in 1967 and thinking that Martin Luther King was going too fast. Well, those people look so benighted to us now. You don't want to be one of them. I'm writing to them to let them know, just like Shelby Steele let me know that I wasn't crazy, that they're not crazy to be good liberal people, maybe even leftist people, but not weaponized wokesters who call themselves helping black people when really their main commitment is to going around virtue signaling that they know that racism exists and enjoying in a kind of bloodlust of hurting other people in the name of it. 
that really doesn't work. It's just a religion, as I say. And I think it needs to be said, the new book is actually, it's not written to Black people in particular. It certainly refers to Black people. But honestly, the main person I was thinking of in writing this new one was a certain kind of educated white person who is uncomfortable in that they're finding that they have to pretend to agree with things that really don't work that are really mean and that really don't make sense. And some of it, Megan, comes from your book, where, as you know, I was very touched and very stimulated by your identifying a certain way that that kind of person started talking, especially about four years ago. There was a real hairpin turn last year, but about four years ago, you started noticing a certain way people were talking, you know, over their Chardonnay at a certain kind of backyard Brooklyn party or, you know, the moms and and dads at the playground with their kids, where there's this certain way of talking where the kind of white person that was written about in that book, Stuff White People Like, has suddenly taken on this kind of prosecutorial glint in the eye. That was such a great blog, was it not? Remember Stuff White People Like? It was fantastic. And I remember it was, but it was, it could never be done now. I remember writing a column. It was a blog before it was a book, I think. And I remember when I was a LA Times columnist writing a column about how stuff white people liked wasn't about white people at all. It was about this kind of, uh, this kind of idea of what is bourgeois or striving. Like it had to do with a lot of things. And and I, I remember writing it in such a way that, I could never write anything today. Nobody would publish like one sentence of that column. And it was completely anodyne at the time. And so what I think, what was that probably like 2010 or something? Mm, A little before. Yeah. Yeah, It was 2010. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but in in any case, I didn't mean to get off on that, but yeah. So the elect, like I I think I called them the, the woke ascenti, but like getting (laughs) back to this. So the people who are, there are the people who are, you know, sipping their rosé and, in Brooklyn, and then there are the people, you know, the the younger people. I call them social justice extremists, mm-hmm. who really, really believe this stuff. Uh, and I'm not sure those are those are not the same thing. So, like, are you? Mm-hmm. How are you? Kind of, um, kind of parsing this because, like, it's a, yeah. it, it's all of a piece, of course. But there are also sort of finely finely tuned. Yeah. Categories here. Yeah, I think that the message that has gotten out there now affects people in different ways depending on age. And so if you're talking about this is all very stereotypy, but this Park Slope person, if they were hit by this when they were 37, well, the basic substrate of their existence is going to remain. Whereas if you're hit with this when you're 14, then the idea that if you're offended, then there's nothing to be said that there are no questions to be had, there's no dialogue. If you are offended, then a cosmic offense has happened, and that that justifies you performing any number of really antisocial actions, including making life living hell for the person who supposedly offended you. That way of looking at things can become a real way of being in a way that it might not if it hits you when you're older. And so I think that's why we're seeing some of this extreme shaming, for example, among teenagers and early 20-somethings in the name of this thing called social justice, which so often is really just a new version of Salem. And you know, you weren't alive for Salem. And if you see a production of The Crucible, it looks like it was people a long time ago. It'd be hard for people to recognize that that exact same human impulse is at work here. The scary thing about 
both the Park Slope people, but more to the point, the 17-year-old who is going to be a Park Slope person in 20 years and may not change in the extremity of their views, is that this is people who think that they found the truth. And of course, the people in Salem thought they had found it too. So did Mao, you know, so did Stalin. They're all wrong, though. We know that Hitler was wrong. But in this case, and of course, these people aren't, you know, killing anybody, but still, it's the substrate of it that matters. They're figuring that we've got the truth. This business of social justice based on critical race theory, that is truth. It justifies any amount of abuse. And I am closed to any discussion as to any behavior of mine that might change. Even I'm closed to the possibility that what I'm doing isn't actually helping black people. And that's a really unlikely position. You know, never mind calling it arrogant or, you know, what have you. These people think of themselves as beneficent. They're not arrogant. But do you really think that you found it? Or do you really think that Robin D'Angelo found the truth? Her? She's the one who's got it figured out when Plato and Kant couldn't do it? That's what these people don't have occasion to think about. And is it because you think that they are just so desperate to be part of a group, to be affiliated with a concept or an idea that they're they're just going to keep keep clinging on to it or like are they just not very smart oh no it's not intelligence it's the first thing they're seeking a sense of connection and warmth and common purpose all human beings do that unfortunately in our society this chasm has opened up where people can fall into it seeking something that they could also get from any number of other communal activities it's partly the decline of traditional religion. It's partly this Frank Putnam story of the decline of communal organizations. And it's partly just social media and the way it whips this sort of thing up. But everybody wants to join something and everybody wants to feel like they figured out the truth. That's part of what religion is. But in this case, it's it's a shitty religion, frankly. It's a religion that is focused more on hurting people than on changing the world. So I figure that there needs to be a pushback. We're going to pause here for a brief message. Hi there. My name's Paul Shirley. I'm a former professional basketball player turned writer and also the founder of a thing called The Process. I'm honored to have a few seconds within Megan's podcast to tell you what we do at The Process. If you're anything like most people, you're scattered, overstimulated, and frustrated by your inability to concentrate for long periods of time texts, emails, social media, and somehow you're expected to make progress at your job and on your passion projects. It's a lot. This is where the process comes in. I believe that everything worth doing requires a process to do it, a set of habits and routines that allow you to access sustained periods of deep work. Through virtual co-working and productivity coaching, that's what we do at the process. We help people like you learn to be productive, not busy. And here's the best part. You won't be doing this alone. Inside our platform, you'll meet people from all over the world, people who are dealing with the same frustrations you are, and people who want the same things you do, structure, accountability, community, and most of all, progress on the projects most important to you. We'd love to have you. To learn more, come see us at createyourprocess.com. I often talk about this in terms of it being a hostage situation, because you've got a relatively small number of people setting the agenda for everybody else. You have, you know, it's, uh, Barry Weiss is the one who said Twitter is the ultimate editor of, of the New York Times. I mean, I think what frustrates so many of us uh, is that it's not the people 
who are 21 and screaming on Twitter. It's the fact that the the leaders of institutions are just bowing to them. It's I don't really care what a, an Oberlin senior says. <laughs> I care about what the editor of the New Yorker decides to put in the magazine and and who is acceptable to have a conversation with and what kinds of art exhibits can be had in museums and and I just it's it's astonishing to me that it's like <laughs> the, the people who are supposedly educated and powerful and self-confident and should have some sort of sense of their own fortitude and trust their instincts seem to have just like thrown up their hands is it a self-preservation kind of maneuver yeah it's fear one of the most ironic things about what's going on is that in the 70s and 80s being a racist became practically equivalent to being a pedophile in you know what you might call enlightened america and also beyond it so now we have a situation where this this small group of people this vocal minority can scare the rest of us into pretending an allegiance to things that we know we do not truly have the kind of allegiance to that this crowd do, that often we're, we're pretending allegiance to ideas that we know don't make any sense. We are excluding from the common context things that we know that we value simply because it has become such a feared thing to be called a racist. It's good to not want to be a racist, but these people piggyback on it. And so as I've said with Glenn, a lot of this is people – you know, I say that it I'll, – I'll just leave it because it's so indelicate, but it really does nail it to me. It, it's, it all smells like pee to me. And you can just see that these people are scared to death. And so we, we're having a societal transformation on the basis not of consensus, not of general, gradual, intellectual development. It's all just based on people being scared and calling it social justice and hiding behind black people as if that's what all of this is really about. But really, it's just about fear. You don't want to be called a dirty name on Twitter. If Twitter didn't exist, then we would be in a very different place right now. It is one of the saddest outcomes of social media, which adds to all of the wonderful parts of it. I don't think any of us would want to give it up. But once there's Twitter, somebody calls you a racist, not just in some newspaper column or, you know, in the letter section of some newspaper. Right. Remember that? Or it which, used to which be you used to get so upset about that. Remember, it's it was like, oh, dear. Or oh, no. they would send you something through email. Back in the day, yeah. I used to get lots and lots of hate mail and you just oh, kind of get used to it. Oh, yeah. But now you don't get that. That's rare because they put it on Twitter where the whole world can see it. That changes everything. Uh, yeah. I, what do you say to the person who says – well, you can complain about this all you want, but at the end of the day, all this kind of corporate and institutional virtue signaling is is just that. The, the messaging might be different, but the people in charge remain the same. It's still a tiny select group of powerful white men. Like The, the virtue signaling is a distraction from the fact that the cap capitalism, the capitalist status quo mm -hmm. remains. Like, how, how do you... How do you respond to that? Just because Nike has woke commercials doesn't change <laughs> the fact that they continue to operate as they always have. Well, you know, frankly, if that's all that a person sees, then it just indicates that they, their interests are what they are, but they're, they're incomplete. If we're watching, for example, one university after another and one you know school even below that level after another being hijacked by this anti-empirical, mendacious, 
infantilizing ideology. If that's not a problem, then I think that we're going to Richard Hofstadter. We're talking about a certain anti-intellectual strain in American culture. And by that, I don't mean that people are stupid. But what I mean is that there are people who think that if our intellectual culture is turned upside down, that's less important than whether or not or how much Nike has actually changed. I would say that both things are important. And so, yeah, virtue signaling as a fashion, frankly, that's, you know, that's old fashioned. But the issue is what impact that virtue signaling has. And if what's going on is an overturning of the honesty and substance of our entire intellectual, moral, and artistic culture, then anybody who tells me that that doesn't matter is somebody whose priorities are quite different from mine. And in all arrogance, I am quite confident that in 50 years, people will look back on that question and see it as evidence of something wrong at the heart of our culture these days. I can't claim to have all the answers, but the idea that what we've been seeing since last summer is just a little tempest in a teapot, that was a notion that maybe made sense for about 10 minutes into the summer. But after about July, no, it's often that I think people like what they're seeing. And if you do, then that's a whole different conversation as far as I'm concerned. You don't have friends who sort of grouse and murmur about this. I mean, I'm assuming that you do. I, I feel maybe it's just like they, they come to me. I mean, I don't know how many times a week somebody says to me like, well, I, I can only tell you this. I'm only saying this to you. <laughs> You know, the funny, th the reason that we could not possibly be all wrong, although we're in our bubble too, is that yes, I have that. You know, it, it's amazing to me how many of my friends have come out of the woodwork, so to speak, and say, you know what? I agree with you, but, you know, we can't say this around other people. And in answer <laughs> to the question some people may be asking, those people are black as well as white. It's not only white people saying, you're saying the right thing. I can give vent to my racism. It's lots yes, and lots thank of people. You. Yeah. And also, I think that um, there's a group of people, and I hope I'm not being too personal in saying that, Megan, we know them. It's a people, people we know in common. There is a certain community of liberal slash leftist people who just don't get this new stuff. And I have found that, yes, I value knowing all of those people because they keep me in, in a sense that I'm not crazy. And that group is not people from right-wing think tanks, not at all. It's that they're just some of us who cannot stand silent watching anti-empiricism put forward as some kind of higher morality. But yes, it's interesting how many people agree with this, which makes me realize, hmm, somebody needs to write a book, not that I'm the only one, to make people realize that it's okay to not understand why you're being told that to not be leftist enough is to be a white supremacist or to be in bed with white supremacy. No. Yeah. Somebody has to stand to thwart this and say no. We're not in right-wing think tanks, but we're also not on NPR. I mean, we're we're talking on podcasts and we're talking on YouTube and I'm not trying to make a case that anybody's being marginalized, but like I, I'm just consistently surprised that there there isn't like, you know, there there aren't sort of media companies springing up that will kind of accommodate this this sort of discussion. It's it's strange to me the way it has remained so siloed. 
you know, I think that'll change. And, you know, to tell you the truth, you know, all of a sudden now I'll never be on NPR again. I'm not boyc- I'm not boycotted by NPR. I get to get my licks in. And I think that's also true of a lot of other people, especially since I know <laughs> – I probably shouldn't say this. A lot of people at NPR agree with this stuff, but they're not going to say it on record. And so, yeah, I really do think that what we're doing here is the idea is not to push the elect out of the room. I am very happy to have people on the hard, even the loony left at the table to remind us of places that we could go. And even if some of what they say is never going to hit the mainstream, you need to hear from them. And society changes on the basis of ideas like those. Slowly, it doesn't happen instantly the way a lot of people seem to be waiting for. But the idea is to just get it back to where it was in, say, the wonderful 2010, when you could have, for example, stuff white people like where I remember one of the entries was being offended. And the joke was that you're walking around offended on the basis of people who you don't even belong to. Now, that would be considered a white supremacist thing to say. Not not funny to have that white person being mocked for being offended. Their being offended is now the equivalent of them being in the grace of God. That's got to go. That's what I think we need to change. So let's let's go back to 2010. And 2010 was bad enough in many ways, but I think that we were having a much more intelligent conversation about the country going leftward. Do you think we were having more intelligent conversations in 2010 than we were in 1995? Like, was that a PC time? Because it's funny, it was, but like PC again, not a, not a term that I'd like to use. It was like an in-joke among the left. It existed and mm-hmm. existed in academia, but it wasn't, it wasn't, there was no social media. So it wasn't sort of uh, made into a part of the popular culture as much other than mm-hmm. just as a joke, you mm-hmm. know? It's funny. I remember PC when it was beginning. I had a a very PC roommate in 1984. And he would use that term with kind of an arched eyebrow, with the idea being, yes, we know it's kind of arrogant to say that there's certain views that are correct, but we all know that they are, and ha, ha, ha. And I remember that was something that you said, at least in my college, it was something said in leftist circles as a little joke. It was kind of making fun of our own smugness. And I say our, because I thought of myself as very much part of that crowd. I was Maud to take a TV character who was very PC in that way. But then the term changed and it started being used as a battering ram and in, in ridicule, which is exactly the trajectory that woke has taken. But yeah, in terms of the race debate, the 90s in retrospect were the grand era of card carrying black conservatism getting a lot of attention from the mainstream media in the wake of the Reagan administration being having been in power. And then that that evaporated in the late 90s. And by the time you got to about 2003, it's interesting. For some, it was emblematic. The affirmative action victory at the University of Michigan, the fact that racial preferences were not completely shut down in those two, the Grutter and the Gratz cases, that was the end of an era. And from then on, black conservatism of the sort of Clarence Thomas, Tom Sowell type was no longer of mainstream interest. And so by 2010, things were very much in the middle. I remember writing some things back then where I said that a critical mass of people realize that racism still exists, but that it isn't as determinative as it used to be. 
Now, you know, if I, I said that, I would have some explaining to do. But at the time, I thought that was a reasonable thing to say. And I would hear some non-leftist white people saying it. They were saying that things have changed. They would be careful where they said it, but they'd say it, sometimes even in Park Slope, not now. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, too, something uh, with respect to academia. Your your mother was a professor. Is that mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um so last spring, I think I've only been badly dragged on Twitter twice uh, in, in my life. And by far the worst time was I made a stupid joke uh, just off the cuff, which I really don't do very often about um, I, 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 I have always been I, I remain sort of slightly just irritated or bemused at how Jill Biden likes to call herself Dr. Jill Biden. I just, I think it's incredibly pretentious. So I just made kind of a joke about how like people with PhDs, you know, it's silly, for, you know, it's silly for them to refer to themselves a doctor as doctor. And I hadn't thought it through. Like I, I was really more thinking about like, you know, your, your random, I shouldn't even say this again, like your random sociologist who like wants to be addressed as doctor uh, everywhere she goes. And I got absolutely just dragged and it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And you direct messaged me and you explained that, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, this was like a black thing because, and that your mother had, had, had a PhD and was an academic and held that title very, very dear. And what I did notice was that this little joke, I thought I was making about pretentious academics. I had no thought of race in my mind at all when I made this stupid joke. I was really being dragged as a racist. That's what it became. Uh, I was absolutely pilloried uh, by by black people on Twitter. Um, and it was the first time I had ever thought about this. Um, and I guess, I don't know, like what what would your mother have made of this moment? Was she a very, um, was, was, was she a, would have been a social justice yeah. uh, person more than more than you? Yeah, she would have, and it's taken me a long time to work that out. Um, my mother had um, grown up in the Deep South, and so you can imagine how she felt about white people, and everybody would understand why. And so she was very wary of whites, and she had participated in sit-ins, and she was deeply committed as somebody teaching social work in the 1970s and 80s to teaching that Racism can be systemic and institutional as well as face-to-face. And all of this you know, made perfect sense as the black person she was with a doctorate in the mid-20th century. And she, I should say, was you know, of the first generation of a whole stream of black PhDs going and getting jobs in mainstream institutions in addition. And that generation in particular held that doctor title you know, with great pride. And that is some of where your Twitter dragging was coming from. I have a little bit of an itchy issue with younger Black academics who are still celebrating that title in that way. There's a part of me that feels like saying that since it's become so much easier for a Black person to get a PhD, need we display the title to that extent. I personally do not. You would not catch me dead calling myself Dr. John McWhorter as if it was some (laughs) grand honor. And partly it's just because I'm such a nerd. But I know that other black people my age and younger feel differently, and they may have had difficulties that I did not have. But my mother was someone who I, you know, I loved my mother and she was one of the most brilliant and insightful people I've ever known. But she had formed part of her identity 
part of her sense of self, part of her sense of value to the world, which it was, was showing that racism was systemic and that racism was highly persistent. And when a human being develops that sense of what their importance is. And my mother was an excellent teacher. I still hear from students of hers who loved her in the classroom. She was very good at it. If that's your sense of purpose, you may not be one. It may create a resistance to acknowledging that progress has happened. And my guess is that if my mother were still with us, she would be somebody who would be more interested in pointing out the obstacles than the progress. And not, and once again, this is part of what I mean. She wasn't crazy. And she wasn't trying to shore up her career or trying to get attention. It was based on a gut-level sense that it was her job to maintain that position. When somebody is the age that she would be now, my, my mother would now be um, my mother would now be 84. That I get. It's people younger where I get impatient with that kind of um, that 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 unwillingness to allow for a progress that you as a young and even very young person have seen and experienced so concretely but yeah my mother was someone who i imagine was going to have as hard a time letting go of her position of 1965 as i would be let's say that things got really bad let's say that there was some sort of racist backlash you know cuz so, social history is about perfect storms and unusual cocktails and twists and turns. Suppose for reasons that we can't predict now, just like who could have predicted social media? Suppose that happened. I definitely can say, especially since I'm 55, let's say all this happens when I'm about 61 or two. I'd have a very hard time wrapping my head around allowing that something had really, really changed. It would take me a long time. I'd like to think I could do it, but maybe I couldn't. I might go to my grave saying, no, things are better, things are better, and looking for the statistics that you know prove or supposedly prove this or that. That's what we human beings are like. You get set in your ways. I don't think my mother was an exception in that, and I think she was typical of her generation. And you need people like that to tell you, you know, not to be a Pollyanna. But no, I think um, it's a delicate thing to talk about. My mother, um, she had a, a debilitating aneurysm at 50 in 1987 when I was in my early 20s and she was never she was never the same again and so her story essentially ends there if it hadn't she and I would have had some problems yeah it would have been hard but you know here I am and you know you can only take your life as it goes what was her field mom was a child psychologist and social work teacher wow so that those are probably the two most mm-hmm. captured academic fields today. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, it would have yeah, it would have been hard, but I say again, she had the best intentions at heart. She was very good at what she did and she taught me a certain gospel. Like for example, I knew about deindustrialization and its effects on the black community long before I was supposed to because one summer, you know, t- sh- this is how you raise a nerd. Like not only was I reading about dinosaurs and looney tunes and things like that, but one summer, I think it was yeah, summer of 78, she said I want you to read this by the end of the summer. She hands me this textbook the size of a child and I forget what it was called, but it was basically a a textbook on race and sociology. And it explained all of these things that let you know that racism is not just about the Ku Klux Klan or somebody calling you the N-word. And she made me read it. Every week she'd say, so what did you learn from chapter three? And, you know, the summer's about 12 weeks and, you know, there were about 12 chapters. Got through that damn book. I learned a lot 
from that. That is a great mom. And what she was teaching me from that book was all correct. Now, you can know everything in that book and still not have the apocalyptic vision about race that many people insist on today. But still, that was who she was. And I think she would have stayed as somebody where that message was the only message, because that's exactly the way I'm going to be about my message. Do you ever worry that your feelings about all of this are are a reaction to her? Like, are you sort of on some on some visceral level rebelling? I mean, this is something I worry Mm -hmm. about in myself. Like, I my mother was not a political person, but she was. I mean, I've talked about this a little bit with other guests. She was a very performative person, so Mm. I have I just developed this allergy to bullshit Mm -hmm. and a kind of instant. Uh, I, I think a sort of ability to immediately see if somebody is, is being disingenuous. And I think that I, it's an overcompensation. I think I, I, I lean into that a little bit too much. Uh, and that's, I try to, to be aware of that, but I wonder if you ever have thoughts like that. Yeah, I've thought about it. And to the extent that I can plumb myself, no, I'm not rebelling against her. And my mother was a very difficult person as well. She was, she contained multitudes, but no. Um, if there's any of that in me, and of course there is, it's a disembodied haze of teendom where I shifted from the age of about 11, where I was a very black-centered kid. It would surprise many people to know this. My home was with them, They were my friends when there were other white people around. It was the black kids I tended to hew more to. Then you look at me when I'm about 16, and that's changed. And it was because of various things, one of them being the creeping idea that if you're a nerd, you're not black, which was stronger in the 70s and 80s than I'm beginning to get the feeling it is today. And all sorts of things where it was was easier to be weird around the white kids. But then once you're around the white kids – you can't help noticing that there's an extent. It's not as if they're they're bigots. You know, even in the 70s and 80s, things were changing very, very quickly. But still, you're not always being seen fully. And Lord forbid the dating thing starts where you can't help getting the feeling that even if you are not Adonis, that you know, there's kind of a reason why you're always the bridesmaid, never the bride year after year after year. And so all of that, I think a bit of me has never gotten over being told that I wasn't good enough because I was this kind of reserved oddball. There might be a little of that in it, but I think mainly what it is is just just that I like things to make sense. I cannot listen to people saying things that don't make sense to me without trying to organize it all. It's the lawyer. And so I just, I can't, I don't I actually I don't have trouble going to sleep, but I walk around feeling like things aren't right. And I just can't help that. And I cannot, the way many people do, sequester race as something different from that. For me, it was no, why can't race make sense too? And that's where I think I really am. Do you go like ruining dinner parties because you're arguing with people? No. <laughs> you just can't let it sit. No, I don't do that because with issues like this, there's an extent to which nothing you say will help. It'll only make people angry. And so for me, there's a point, and sometimes I don't even have to hear anything said, where you just kind of shut down. I am not one for ruining the dinner party. I'll just kind of play along and hope that the subject changes. Yeah, there's just – there's 
no point. For example, with um, for like with George Floyd, for me to say in some settings, you know, a, a white guy was killed in the exact same way, and it's recorded. His name is Tony Timpa. To push that too hard in some settings, I've noticed it's just it isn't worth it. You're not going to change anybody's mind, and it's just going to make people angry. And life is short. And I'm talking about, in this case, white people as much as black people. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, just there's no point. And, you know, that's another part of it, Megan. Because I'm not one for doing it face-to-face any more than absolutely necessary, I want to get it out in writing because I don't do it in person. It's, oh. and it, it's it, Get it out in writing and – if somebody's mad, at least they're not with you, and they might say something on Twitter, but frankly, I have other things to do. I never thought about that until now, but yeah, no, there's no point in talking about these things face-to-face with a certain kind of person, so I just don't do not do it. Life is life is short. Oh, wow. Well, you're, you're a better man than I. You do um, it? You actually- Yeah, I tend to be, I, well, yeah, I tend to be a little bit- um, Argumentative, I but I try hmm. to do it in a good humored way. I try to always like you know be keep it keep it light. I don't know, but yeah, I I think especially the last couple of years, I I uh, I I don't know. I just I I don't like to sit there and just have somebody have something in, in, incredibly wrong. Like if they just say something that I know <laughs> to be false, mm-hmm. it's it's hard for me to. To let that go. You know but. what my strategy with that is actually is I'll I'll ask one rhetorical question and then very deliberately not follow up. Just leave it sitting in the air because I think that can be useful and that the person will keep thinking about that. Sometimes the person will come to you two or three years later and say, remember that thing that you said? And so if somebody says something about, you know, uh, educated white parents who send their kids to a private school, that means that they're racist. And I might just say something like, would you really be comfortable accusing Angela of being a racist because she sends her kids to the private school over on the other side of town? Is she a racist because of that? It's one thing to say that about a class of people, but do you really think Angela is a racist on that level? And the person will probably say, well, you know, if you put it that way, I guess so. But you can look in their eyes and see that they don't mean it. Yeah, You just gave them some food for thought. But leave it there. Don't push the point because you won't get anywhere because you're touching people where they live. That sort of thing. I will do yeah. that, but that's about the limit. You know, actually, now that I'm thinking about this, I, I, I wonder too if there's some sort of like female privilege that women have in terms of arguing. No, seriously, because I think that to be a, a woman who's kind of, you know, uh, argumentative or, you know, will have a kind of intellectual volley or just, you know, be, be a little bit confrontational, that's not the norm. So I don't think it's as mm-hmm. threatening. I, I'm not going to get accused of mansplaining, you know, like I don't have that uh, to worry about. So I think it's, yeah, a little, yeah. Like, especially when I was younger, it was like maybe kind of cute that, uh, you know, I would kind of right. uh, get into it with people. And the older I get, I think it's less cute. So I just might notice it more. I don't that know. Is, I know what you mean. And it's, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if it's I like, were what a, what a what a you know what a feisty girl like kind of yeah, and if I were a different kind of black man, I would have a little bit more space because if I had more of a black cadence to my voice and all sorts of very subtle sorts of things, I could get away with it because I'd be speaking from down below, so to speak, speaking for my community. I'm the oppressed person, but instead, I've got this insurance salesman, 1946 white Connecticut voice. And so it doesn't sound that way. And in general, yeah, as a man, 
I avoid that sort of thing, especially if it's a woman, because if you interrupt, you know, there's a history yeah. of that. And I even I turn down panels on some radio and TV shows because I just say with the composition of that crowd, I couldn't interrupt without being processed as obnoxious, but they will talk over me and I won't get to say anything. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. It, there's an etiquette there. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we, we've been going for a while. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I did want to ask you um, about something. Uh, there were some uh, remarks that you and Glenn made uh, on a recent episode. I think it was an Ask Me Anything. Somebody had written in, it had to do with relationships and politics. I guess a, a listener had written in and asked if it was possible to have a spouse or a partner with whom you did not share a sort of baseline ideological outlook. And and Glenn talked about his wife being considerably to the left of him and how and how, you know, they but they have other things in common and and she keeps him in check and and all of that. And I I have to say I was uh, several things happened to me as I was listening to this. I heard Glenn speak and there was like this tiny little woke feminist in me who was wondering if that sort of disparity works well when it's the man who's the more, you know, quote unquote, public facing spouse. Like there's an element in which you can just sort of pat the other person on the head and say, there, there, those are nice opinions you have. And not that Lawan Glenn's wife is mm -hmm. someone to whom you do that. But then, no. <laughs> then two things happened. First, Glenn was generally vulnerable when he said, you know, but we've only been married a few years. So, so your prayers are welcome. <laughs> and then the second thing that happened is that you uh, you spoke and you you effectively stated that you would not be able to be with someone uh, who wasn't on your side in a pretty particular set of ways and and I found that exchange really moving and and genuinely vulnerable not not just for my own reasons so without asking you to go into too many personal details I wonder if you have anything more to say about that if that was a moment that you reflected on later that was a weird place that we went in that one. Um, there are times when Glenn and I, we're not staging it, but of course we kind of plan what we're going to talk about. But sometimes it goes into some places where, you know, we really are just completely flying blind. And that was one of those things. And I would just say that um, at this point, I have developed a certain set of commitments and I've gotten very explicit about them. And it and it becomes part of my social life and it's part of, you know, talk about who you think you are and what your value is to the world. It's, you know, if I have anything to offer, it's become one of those things. And I would be happy to have someone to keep me honest, et cetera. And if somebody was, you know, lefter than me, okay. Especially since I think of myself as left of center. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You know, it's not That's like I'm a Republican conservative. Yeah. But it is at the point where if – with one event after another, I could not see eye to eye with the person who I'm making dinner with, with the person who I'm having a glass of wine with. I'm not sure how real it would be for me, or I would just – part of, for me, a romantic relationship would have to be a certain basic comfort about those things because it has become me. You know, with all of the media that people like us do and, you know, the books and how you process the news and especially with the news being so immediate with it being in our pockets all the time, I don't think I would want to want to go there. And as I said, you know, my, my marriage didn't end because of that, but it was an element in the water 
And I think it was part, it was a symptom of our coming apart. I think that she originally, before we met, was lefter than me. And we had kind of come together because we were together. And I think part of a symptom of the fraying was that I think she was going back to her natural self. And yeah, that part of it I don't miss. And I wouldn't want to go back there. And I think you also said something about how if you had been with your now ex-wife last summer, it would have mm-hmm. been all the more difficult just given yeah, everything that, that was going on. that wouldn't have been fun. Exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly. and you know, to, to that end, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask this. We're recording now on April 21st. Yesterday was the day the verdicts were announced in the Derek Chauvin trial. This conversation isn't going to go up for a few weeks. And obviously a lot will have been said between now and then, but I, I wonder if, if you have any just quick thoughts. Do you, do you think it could have gone any other way given the climate? No. And the way I'm seeing it is that, um, well, frankly, I'm glad it went that way for the sake of reform of the cops. I think that, you know, Derek Chauvin deserved exactly what he got and possibly more. The idea that what it's about is how cops treat black people, I don't see the way a lot of people see it because I know that Derek Chauvin's do terrible things to white people too in larger numbers and that the disparity in terms of the proportion of black people that these things are done to matches perfectly with the fact that black people are two and a half times more likely also to be poor and poverty brings you into contact with the cops. So for me, I've had to work very hard at this because you're really not supposed to think this way. And with the cops, people's feelings are so extreme that I went with the tide for many, many years. And even now I have to take a deep breath. But no, George Floyd did not die because he was a black man. He died because of a major problem with people like Derek Chauvin being cops. And so what I saw yesterday was that if there can be cop reform, if it has to be on the basis of a myth that the cops kill black people more easily, if that's the way it has to be, and I suspect it does, okay, because eventually the cops would be much less likely to kill people in general. And then in terms of pure pragmatism, I think that a major reason many black people are under the impression that the nation is set against them would be taken away. Because there is this idea that to be black is to operate, no matter what social class you are, no matter who you are, under a serious danger of being iced for no reason by the cops. I don't think that's true. But if the cops stopped doing what they do, in general, it would happen to black people much, much less as well. And I think that our race debate would turn a major corner if that were the case. I can see that the mainstream media would ignore that the cops were doing that kind of thing less to white people too. That just wouldn't be part of the story. But, you know, life isn't perfect. Social history is messy. And so I cheered what I saw yesterday, but I didn't see it as the victory over racism that I can see the mainstream media will insist that it is forever, along with the people who who take it in. There's nothing that I can do about that. But I'm glad that that man is going to jail. And I'm really glad that he is, you know, in there now. I think major statement about the cops. He should not be sitting in his living room watching Marvel movies. So, yeah, yeah, I liked yesterday, but not for the reasons that I think I'm supposed to have. <laughs> well, isn't that, that, that statement could be applied to so many things, I think. I, <laughs> yes, I, I, I'm okay with this, but for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> 
Well, John, I can't thank you enough for, for talking with me. I know you're incredibly busy, so um, I'm, I'm really grateful. I've, it's okay. I've Not too busy to for you, Megan, and have I'm this glad conversation. that you did this. And um, yeah, so just, I, I know you have the, the language book coming out that we haven't spoken about at all, but do you want to just remind us again what that is since uh, it will coincide with is, this? <laughs> <laughs> that book is available at your friendly bookseller now. That is Nine Nasty Words, English in the Gutter, Then, Now, and Forever. And it's actually about 12 nasty words, including slurs. And it's just their history, how they came to be what they are. And it is, despite the fact that the slurs in particular are very unpleasant in themselves, overall, the book is a jolly romp through words like fuck and shit, etc. And I wrote it basically to give readers a good time back before June 2020 when I was happy, or at least (laughs) happier. And so that's what Nine Nasty Words is. Okay, and the elect is available in serialized form on Substack, and when is it going to come out as a book? That is available on Substack in serialized form. That's johnmcwhorter.substack.com. I am contractually not allowed to say at this point when it will be available as a book, but I will say here, just because I'm going to say it, that it will be well before the end of this calendar year. Okay. That sounds yeah, that's all I can say now. Okay. There will that's be two books by me coming out this calendar year, but in May is nine nasty words. Then we'll get to the other one. Wow. All right. If it takes you 20 minutes to write a book, that's... <laughs> I can't I, help uh, it. We can all hate you a little bit for that, but... Uh, I don't mind. But um, I, uh, I, for one, uh, remain really appreciative of, of everything you do. So um, thank you again for uh, talking with me and, and good luck with all of these projects and everything else. Thank you. That was my interview with John McWhorter. John teaches linguistics and music history at Columbia University. His new book about race is called The Elect. It's being rolled out on his Substack, And his new book on language, Nine Nasty Words, is out this week. You can find him in regular conversation with economist Glenn Lowry on The Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv. You've been listening to the Unspeakable Podcast. If you would like ad-free editions of this podcast, please support the show at any level on the Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can get lots of perks there, including if you join at the $10 a month level or higher, $10 off your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. You can find the items in the Nuance store on the show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Until then, thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved 
loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.